Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Chad Myers. I'm our adult discipleship director. Welcome to those of you in the room and those of you joining us online. Glad to be with you. I have uh, uh, been up here for the pastoral assist in the past few weeks, but it's been a while since I preached in here. So uh, you have forgotten what I've sounded like, but I'm glad to be back in this room and to hear you and the beautiful music that is in this room. Such a privilege to do that. Uh, Jeff said Father's Day was coming. And uh, to avoid the stress of Father's Day, uh, because we have four wonderful children and they agonize about what do you get, uh, dad, and uh, I agonize about please don't get me any more stereotypical Father's Day presents. And uh, so several years ago, we just agreed, I love watches. Uh, how about you guys just get me a, a new watch every year, different watch, different color, something like doesn't have to be extravagant, just a different watch. And so I know that. And today I'm wearing my waistcoat. And I'm wearing my waistcoat because uh, one of the watches that I really, really want that I haven't got yet is a pocket watch. And pocket watches go great with waistcoats. So I'm signaling to my family, and I think I'll wear it every day this week, to remind them Father's Day is on the way, and I sure would love that gold pocket watch for that waistcoat. <clears throat> it's, uh, we are finishing up our series, Mark My Words. Uh, and that phrase, mark my words, is often said when you really want somebody to remember something. And in this series, we've had different phrases that we throw around today, turn the other cheek, uh, that, that people use today that we may not know what they originally meant, and we may not know that they started with Jesus. And in fact, I watched a few videos this week on the phrase that we're coming to today that people use this phrase and they didn't know the origin of this phrase. And today, to close up our series, we are going to be talking about he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. You've heard, you've heard this phrase. People use this phrase at its most basic explanation. It simply means violent means leads to violent ends. Or if you use violence to accomplish uh, your agenda, violence will often come back to you. Uh, do any of you have a sword? I have a sword. I didn't bring it. Don't be afraid. Uh, I, was, I was a groomsman in a, a wedding, a friend of mine, and he gave us all real full-size katanas. Uh, ninja swords, if you will. And uh, I thought about bringing that sword to use just as an illustration, but I tried to use it earlier at a different church in my ministry, and I was reminded that that's an illegal weapon and you can't bring that onto church property. So could you just imagine me with a mask on coming with a sword onto church property and our security team? It probably wouldn't go well. <clears throat> if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Now, at first glance, it seems like a pretty basic, obvious meaning, and it may seem unrelatable, but I think there's layers to it, and there's something here for each and every one of us today. Let's pray together and ask that God would help us see what that is for us today. Father, it's your truth, it's your scriptures, it's your world, it's your beauty, and we are yours. We give you our hearts and minds now. Do with us what you will. We open ourselves to you. May we buy out this time by your grace. Amen. You may remember the story of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, known as the patriarchs. Cycles of dysfunction if you read the Genesis narrative carefully. Um, 
God promised Abraham, you would be a great nation and through you, I will bless the world. In order to have a great nation, you have to have a child first. And so Abraham had a child and uh, Isaac was his name. And Isaac had a child. In order to be a great nation, you have to have a child and more children. Isaac had a child named Jacob. And you may remember that he was born with a twin named Esau. And Esau came out first and Jacob came out second. But do you remember what Jacob did when he was born? He grasped the heel of Esau. It was a signal of what kind of person he would be. In fact, the name Jacob means he grasps the heel, which is a Hebrew idiom signaling this person cheats. He lies. He's a trickster, a con artist. It means he deceives. This is the kind of person you don't want to go into business with. This is the kind of person who raises their children to cut corners and look over on the other person's algebra exam, if you must. And Jacob, this is evidenced in his life. That's his name. And you, you, you know, he really lived up to his name. He really lived up to his namesake. And so Esau comes home one day and Esau's the firstborn and he has been out in the field hunting and he's famished, he's exhausted and Jacob at the behest of his mother has prepared a meal in order to lay this trap for Esau and Esau comes in and you can imagine when you have to cook over a fire, it takes a lot longer to cook a meal and so he's starving and he says, I'm so desperate, I'll do anything for a meal and Jacob says, well, I just happen to have some wonderful venison stew and chili for you. Would you like some? And Esau says, yes, I'll do anything. Jacob says, sell me your birthright. And they quabble back and forth for a little bit. But Jacob had laid this trap perfectly. And Esau ends up selling his birthright, which meant that he got the blessing of the father. And it also meant that now he gets two thirds of the inheritance as opposed to one third. Jacob tricks, he lies, he cheats, he steals, he deceives. And maybe he gets what's coming to him. Esau's furious. His father's furious when he finds this out. Jacob ends up leaving and he has to go and search for a wife because if you're going to continue the family line, you have to have a wife and you have to have kids. So he goes to find a wife and he ends up with a distant relative named Laban. Now, Laban was also a cheat, a trickster, a con artist, and Jacob may have just met his match with Laban. They were perfect for each other. You remember what happens? Jacob comes to Laban and he sees one of his daughters, Rachel, and she's incredibly beautiful. And Jacob's breath is taken away. And it was love at first sight where the camels got their water. And he says, I have to have her. He said, Laban, please, I would love to marry Rachel. And Laban says, okay, well, here's what it's going to take. This is my firstborn. You have to work for seven years. And Jacob says, okay, that's nothing. So he works for seven years. But Laban had another plan. He lays the trap. And on his wedding night, he gives him Leah, his other daughter who Jacob was not as attracted to. And Jacob was tricked and he was conned and he's furious. And he said, how did you do this? Why would you do this? I really want Rachel. Laban says, you got to work for seven more years. And so he does. And this begins this and continues this cycle of lying and cheating and animosity and jealousy and distrust and all of this discord sown. And Jacob ends up leaving. He has to flee. He can't take it anymore, but not before he's actually conned Laban out of most of his livestock, essentially taking his bank account. And he flees and he goes away. And you think, how sad. What a story. What a cycle of dysfunction and distrust. And if you're trying to describe it, you might say something like, well, what was going on? Well, and Jacob got what was coming to him. 
If you play with fire, after all, like the Chinese proverb says, you get burned. Or maybe you're sitting there to yourself saying, well, what goes around comes around. Jacob started it. When my son was, was early on in his age and someone would do something to provoke him, then something would happen right back to them. Uh, he would always say, that's what you get. And maybe we think that about Jacob. That's what you get. In reality, we're also saying that this phrase applies. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. What goes around comes around. We're not saying this is necessarily karma, but we are saying there's something here and the way that God has wired the world, some theologians have called it causative justice. I call it proverbial truth. What goes around comes around. And what I mean by proverbial truth is this. It's a proverb that Jesus spoke. It doesn't mean that it's true all places and all times for all peoples, but it does mean as a principle, it is generally true and you will see it show up in your life in some way, shape or form. You reap what you sow. If we want to reap peace and joy, then we sow peace and joy. But what does this mean for us? Sad to say, I would love to stand up here and tell you that my house is in perfect order and I never do anything to cause any type of problems and I never get out the sword of my tongue to use for harm. But that's just not true. I'm a work in progress and I can be very quick with a sharp point of my tongue to criticize my wife or to be harsh with my children. And when one sword comes out, all swords come out. You know what I mean. When one sword comes out, all sword comes out. All swords come out. So the question for us, if we want to be the type of men and women, parents and grandparents that people want to trust, do business with, that people want to be around their children and grandchildren because we've raised them with integrity and truth and backbone. What do we need to do? How do we not die by the sword? I'm so glad you asked. That's why I'm here to give a sermon. (laughs) Matthew 26, 47 through 56. You know the context. It's the arrest of Jesus. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts doing what? Teaching. And you didn't arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. If we don't want to die by the sword, the first thing we need to do is we need to turn swords into plowshares and shears. We need to turn swords into plowshares and shears. You say, well, what do I mean by that? Just a moment. Matthew 26, 47 says this, then the men stepped forward. So this, this crew of authority, the Sanhedrin, the rulers, 
the local officials, the civil authorities, the police as well, seized Jesus and arrested him. They came with clubs and swords. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. Now, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, don't tell us who this is, but John does. Maybe John had a little bit of a jab to get at Peter, and he said, oh, I remember who it was who grabbed their sword. Do you guys remember that? Peter? Peter takes out his sword, and he, he swung it at Malchus. John gives us the other name. It's Malchus. The high priest's servant is there. Likely, as a high priest servant, not carrying anything, but Peter aims for a blow and arguably a death blow. How else do you hit someone in the ear? He's not that skilled of a swordsman, so we do not need to give him the benefit of the doubt that he just struck what he was aiming at. He was trying to kill him, and he got his ear. And, 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 and Jesus says, put your sword back in its place. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you, not, do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Well, how many is that? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? What scriptures is he talking about and why is that significant? So they come to arrest Jesus and the swords and the clubs are out it's, it's, it's a rival gang, if you will. You know, it's this clique versus that clique in high school. And they say, well, hey, meet us behind the uh, Home Depot at midnight. And uh, this, these guys are there. And then all of a sudden, a whole bunch more people show up, more than you ever expected. And you know, oof, we're in trouble now. And they brought the football team. And they bring out their swords and clubs. And Peter, you got to love Peter. Act first, think second. He takes out his sword and he says, well, let's get this party started. Got to strike first, strike hard, no mercy. And he strikes Malchus's ear, cuts it off. Jesus puts it back on and heals it. Interestingly enough, it's the last miracle Jesus does before going to the cross. Is he heals the ear of someone who was there to arrest him. And he says, put your sword back in its place. That's not how we're doing it. He said, I could call on my father if I wanted to, and I could call down 12 legions of angels. Now, now what's a legion? A legion is a reference to a group of Roman soldiers. Not just a group of Roman soldiers, but 6,000 Roman soldiers. And so Jesus says, he gives us a little bit of insight here into uh, there's large numbers of angels. He says, I could call 12 times 6,000 angels. Now, let's do some math in church. What's 12 times 6,000? Yeah, 72,000. And Jesus says, I could call 72,000 angels down. Peter, put your sword away. If I wanted to, I could stop this right now. I could protect myself. I could end everything here. I could end everyone here if I wanted to. But that's not what I'm about. Because the, the mission that the Messiah has come to accomplish is important, but the method and the manner through which it is accomplished is equally important. Do you hear me? The mission that the Messiah came to do, bring about restoration, redemption, justice, peace, shalom for all people in all corners of the world is important, but the method, how it's accomplished, in what way is it accomplished is equally important. And, P and Jesus says to Peter, yeah, that's not how we're bringing about the kingdom. That's not how we're doing it. 
It's not through human arrogance, pride. It's not necessarily through human intelligence. It's not through violence. It's not through coercion. It's not through manipulation. It's not through power. It's another way. And Peter, you're getting in God's way. Put the sword back in its place. He, get, he then goes on to say, how, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Well, what scriptures and what is this way? I think one of the most important scriptures that Jesus is referring to here is Isaiah 53, 12. The suffering, the passage on the suffering servant. Listen to this. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. Who's him? It's, it's the suffering servant. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Giving a portion to the great and a spoil with the strong is something that only happens after what? After a great battle. After a great victory. It means you're on the winning side. But listen to this next part. How is this battle and victory accomplished? Because he won with military might? No. Because he used his authority to achieve victory through power? No. Because he poured out his life unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. How does the suffering servant receive the spoils of victory? He lays down his life. And what does it mean that he's numbered with the transgressors? It means that he was crucified, and on the right and on the left were criminals. This is the way it had to happen, Jesus said. This is how it was foretold. It had to be. Jesus knew that violence begets violence, but self-sacrifice brings about redemption. He knew that, and he came to teach us that, and he came to show us that. And Isaiah prophesied about that. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. But not only that. It's another passage that refers to what the Messiah will accomplish when he came and comes again. It's Micah 4.3, and it says this. You might know this passage. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. A pruning hook is simply another way of, it's an ancient tool that was a, a shear. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This is what Messiah came to accomplish. This is what the kingdom is about. This is what the full restoration of the kingdom will look like. There will be no more war. In the last century alone, we have lost more people due to war than any previous centuries combined. There will be no more need to train in every nation and in every country young boys and girls, young men and women, how to use weapons for self-defense or national defense or for violence or for warfare. There will be no more need for that because what the Messiah will teach us and what he will do through the eradication of the sinful heart is he will show us how to turn weapons of warfare into tools for cultivation for growth. Swords into plowshares. A plowshare is something that plows up the hard ground and prepares for crops to be sown into the earth. Shears, they cut back hedges and they cut off weeds and they, they would cut back the vine, the, vi the vine that produced grapes, that produced wine, which was a symbol of God's favor for God's people. 
would get overgrown. And what they would do is they would take the shears and they would cut back the vine, even the vine with some fruit on it. They would cut back the grapes so that oxygen could get to it and water could get to it and sunlight could get to it so that it could be even more fruitful. That's what God is up to in John 15 when he says, I'm the vine dresser. I'm cutting off things in your life and you may not even like it and it may be good things. They may not be bad so that you can produce more fruit. The principle of swords and the plowshares is all through the scriptures. And we can start now. After World War II, this is very fascinating to me. After World War II, we had seen too much war, so to speak, and military surplus AFVs. It's, uh, we would just look at it and call it a tank. That's just a big tank. Do you know what happened? People took those and they sometimes converted them into bulldozers, into agricultural tractors, logging tractors. If you've seen Axemen, it's an American television show, you've seen this. Two are currently preserved at a museum in Canada. Do you know what the museum is called? Swords and Plowshares. After Micah 4.3. Because this is what God came to do. Any weapons that we have used, and I don't carry a sword today, well, any weapons that we have used intellectually or verbally or physically, God says, I want to transform that and use it to bring about cultivation for growth. Many songs were written after this uh, to show this is what we want. Michael Jackson, 1991, heal the world. Create a world with no fear. Together we'll cry happy tears. See the nations turn their swords into plowshares. And one of my favorite musicals, Les Mis, the finale of that, they will live again in freedom in the garden of the Lord. They will walk behind the plowshare. They will put away the sword. The chain will be broken. All men will have their reward. If this is what future kingdom looks like, then this is what present kingdom work looks like. That any resource and power and strength that we have, we take it and we put it in its proper place and we turn it into plowshares and shears. You see, Jesus is telling Peter point blankly here as he often had to do and sometimes that's the way we need to hear it. We can cut off God's plan or we can cultivate God's plan. We can cut off God's plan or we can cultivate God's plan. One of the most basic ways sin plays out in and through us is we get in the way of what God wants to do. We get in the way of what God wants to do. Or we surrender and we cooperate. We cut off God's plan or we cooperate with God's plan. Where is God inviting you to surrender? Where is God inviting you to cooperate with God's plan? Proverbs 12, 18 says it like this. There's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. If you're like me and you have a quick, sharp tongue, we have to be really careful how we use it because I can leave people right and left gashed and gaped after a conversation. God is inviting me and you to turn that and to bring healing. So if we don't want to die by the sword, we have to turn it into plowshares and shears. And yes, I'm only on my second point, but don't worry, the sermon's point one heavy if you catch my drift. <laughs> Secondly, we have to fall on our sword. We have to fall on our sword. Verse 55, in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? 
Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples stuck with him and they all went to prison with him. No. Then all the disciples said, yes, we're his followers. Do to us whatever you do to him. No. Then all the disciples, as the message puts it, cut tail and ran. The cops showed up. Bye. We're going home. We were never there. And you can kind of sympathize with them. And you can sympathize a little bit with Peter because everyone showed up with weapons and swords. And swords make people nervous. They just do. I remember I went to Africa uh, three times uh, in a row each year. is once a year. And we were going there to teach some pastors uh, some theology and maybe help them with some pastor skills. And it wasn't about us Westerners trying to tell them how to do their thing. It was about learning and collaborating together and at least sharing what we've learned. And maybe it helps them in some way, shape, or form. But I remember going over there and I'm always cognizant because I'd be gone for two weeks at a time. I was always be thinking about my family and my wife and my four kids. And I think, you know, I'd love to get them something, something to take back to them that I was in Africa and thinking about you guys. Here you go, a little souvenir, something like that. And I remember the person who founded this organization and she said to me, you know, I have a son and every time I go on a trip, I get him some kind of knife. And I thought, that's a great idea. I'm from Texas. I like knives and I only have one son. So I figure you got to do everything you can to get this kid as many boy gifts as you can. I mean, he's surrounded by sisters for crying out loud. So you got to get him a lot of boy gifts. And so I'm thinking to myself, all right, we got to get, I got to get him a knife on this trip. I didn't think about airport security and all that stuff like that. Don't worry about that. So we get to Ethiopia and we're going through this market and, 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 and it is what you think it is. It's just kind of like uh, PVC pipes and drapes and each person is selling their goods out of this little area and then you're separated by a drape uh, to the next store. And I say, hey, this would be a good time for, for me to get my son a knife. And she goes, oh yeah, let me find somebody. And she goes away and then she comes back and she says, come with me. And we go to the back corner of the market and it's a little darker back there. And we go to where a person was selling curtains and uh, I say, hey, yeah, I, I would like to see, you know, a, a knife that you have. And they reach under some curtains and they get three knives out. And it was small, medium, and large. And the small was about two inches and the large about 18 inches. And I thought to myself, I don't think I can smuggle the 18-inch back into America. Uh, but I got to win some dad points with my son. So I don't want to bring back, you know, a knife that makes him think, where'd you go, Switzerland? Thanks for the Swiss Army knife. I got to bring something back, right? And so I, let's go with the medium. It's about seven or eight inches, handmade, Ethiopian, more like a machete, less like a pocket knife. But I think, oh, this is going to be great. He was eight years old. Did I mention that? I get home giving out the presents to everybody and I get this knife out and I hand it to my son and he just sly little grin around the corner of his mouth, grabs this thing. My wife's eyes start to go like this. His sister's eyes start to go like this and they look at me horrified. How could you get our brother a weapon like that? Do you know what he can do with this thing, dad? Swords make people nervous. They make people nervous because they can be used for danger, to cause harm. They make people nervous, but they don't have to necessarily. Strength makes people nervous, 
but it doesn't have to. Have to. Authority makes people nervous, but it doesn't have to. Systems of power may make people nervous, but it doesn't have to. Because when someone learns how to use what they've been given, it makes people feel protected and safe. That's the person in whose presence you want to be. And Jesus knew what to do with the authority that had been given him. And he instructs us that we better figure out what to do with the authority that's been given to us. And we better wield it properly, not to harm, but to bring about good. Because we know violence begets violence, but willing sacrifice brings inside out transformation. And some of you may be thinking to yourself, well, I, I'm, I'm not really sharp-tongued like you. I'm not really a violent person. Yes, but if you have thump, something to say and you don't say it, it's silence and it's a lie. If you have something to say but you don't say it, it's simply not true. God wants us to use what we've been given for good, to put the sword in its proper place. The sword doesn't just have to represent violence. It represents authority, power, life force, skills, spiritual gifts, personality, history, resources, story, everything you've been given, we were meant to leverage that stuff for good in the world. That's why, can I preach for a minute? I hear some laughs. I didn't hear any yeses, but I'm going to go for it anyways. That's why... The gospel is not just a gospel of repentance. That's why we don't simply and merely talk about avoiding sin in the Christian life. Because what kind of bad news is that? What kind of gospel is it that says your whole life is about avoiding something negative? Don't do this. Don't go there. Don't think that. Don't say that. Don't be with them. It's not simply about repentance. The gospel is about repent and believe. It's not just about no. It's about yes. Equally and emphatically, it's about yes. It's always crucifixion, resurrection, death, resurrection. It's not death alone. If that's the case, as Paul said, we are to be pitied among most people. It's not just sacrifice. It's sacrifice unto generative life. We're looking at how to give back. We're saying, where does the world need my strength, my resources, my wisdom, my skills, whatever God has given me, I'm supposed to usher in the kingdom into a more realized state. And we're leveraging everything we got to do that. It's a yes in addition to no. Charles Matua Mully, you, you may have heard of him. There was a documentary done in 2015 simply called Mully. It's free on his website. You can find it easily. It's worth a watch. He was born in 1949 in Kenya. He was abandoned by his family and two brothers at the age of six. Wakes up, nobody's there. Has no idea where they go. Can't find him. He begs for food. He steals. He's on the streets. Luckily, he survives. He completes his primary education in 1966. He couldn't go to secondary school because he didn't have any money. At age 17, he converts to Christianity, 
gives his life to Jesus, walks into a church service, realizes he needs to get saved. After that, he walks 43 miles to Nairobi in search of employment. He found work in a private home where his duties included tilling the garden, washing clothes, cooking, and other domestic chores. A year later, he was promoted to farm assistant. He met his wife, Esther. They married in 1970 and had eight biological children. In 1970, he began to work with a road construction company where he oversaw the company's supplies. He did that for two years until he saved up enough money. In 1972, he started his own transportation business conglomerate, Malways Agencies. And in the 1970s and 80s, he became very, very wealthy. He was sharpening his sword what we would consider a millionaire by their standards. He also served as chairman of the boards for several international schools in Kenya between 70 and 91. In 1989, he sold everything he had, all of his properties, all of his business, and he started Molly's Children's Family, better known as MCF, and he dedicated his service to helping street children in Africa through rescuing them, sheltering them, giving them medical care, psychological support, social support, and education. Currently today, he has just under 3,000 children. Since 1989, they've served more than 23,000 children. Swords into plowshares. Falling on swords is self-sacrifice. It's giving back. It's saying, I've been given so much strength, resources, gifts. I can use that for good. I can use that to see other people protected, sheltered. They can feel safe. They can get education. I can use that to see my coworkers come to Jesus. I can use that to see my family flourish in peace and not self-destruction. How's God inviting you to do that? There's only one way we can do this, friends. We must live by the Spirit. In order to fall on our own sword in the proper way, in order to turn our swords into tools for cultivation, we must live by the Spirit. As Galatians 5.25 says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That Spirit who caused us to be reborn, That same spirit who made us awake to our own sin and need of forgiveness and turn to Jesus. That same spirit who set the table and saved us a seat and said, feast on the presence of Christ. That same spirit we have to keep in step. And when we do, we see goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, love, joy, peace, patience instead of deceit dysfunction destruction underhanded ways we become parents and grandparents that see our families begin to flourish we become people with reputations out in the community that other people trust because the way we've dealt with people the mode and manner that we've engaged has gone before us and our reputation precedes us And people want to trust us rather than distrust us because we walk by the Spirit and because we live lives of sowing service. You remember Jacob and Laban, they had one final meeting. 
after all of that destruction, after all of the dysfunction and distrust and discord, after all that, they finally had to come together and say, this isn't good. This doesn't work for either of us. Your family's struggling. My family's struggling. I'm internal suffering. You're suffering. So they made a covenant. They said, we've got to start using the swords differently. They made an agreement. And they began to sow mercy. And they began to sow trust and truth. And they reaped that. You see, communion is about looking backward. Did you know that right before this episode where Peter cuts off Malchus's ear and Jesus heals it, right before this, Jesus had just shared communion with them. Maybe they so quickly forgot. Maybe they didn't understand it. Maybe we're like them. To look back and see that the way of self-sacrifice is the way of the cross, and that's the way of the Messiah, and that's the way of his people. So we look back and we remember our need for forgiveness, but it's not just that. We look forward and we see the need for healing in the world. And we use tools for cultivating that healing. And then we see God's kingdom more realized tomorrow than today. Jesus' weapons of choice were bread and wine. He served a meal. He brought peace through his body and his blood. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Christ. When we really dive into who he is, how he lived and what he taught, we're astonished. Who could do that? Who could act in such a way? Who has that type of resilience and that type of patience? Who has that type of grace for people that betray him? Who has that type of kindness for people that arrest him? Who has that type of patience for the disciples and friends who just don't understand. Surely you are the Son of God. Father, as we learn to keep in step with the Spirit, help us when we're tempted to unsheathe our sword to wound. Help us to hear the voice of the Spirit and to say no. Help us to hear the voice of the Spirit and the prompting and the prodding and the dreaming and the visualizing what you've called us to do and help us to have faith that the Spirit can bring it to pass and use whatever we've been given to bring blessing and not cursing. Help us. We can't do it without you, but with you we can do all things. We pray in Christ's name, amen.